You know, in life we um, experience a lot of temptations, and most of them are simple ones. We may be tempted to leave work a few minutes early. We may be tempted to hit the snooze button when we before we get out of bed. We may be tempted to um, have that extra snack or uh, a party at work. We may be tempted to uh, indulge in a sweet. You know, for me, one of the things that uh, I used to always struggle with during college was when I would drive by the donut shop and the light was on that they were making fresh donuts. And I would always you know, want to give into the temptation to pull in and get some fresh donuts hot out of the grease and have it be something that, you know, kind of, yes, I knew it was bad for my diet, but man, it was something that tasted so good. And those are kind of silly everyday examples, but the reality is in life, we face temptations all the time. Sometimes they're tiny ones like going by the donut shop. Sometimes they're ones where we may be tempted to tell lies to look better in front of other people or so that we don't have to admit failure. Maybe we're tempted to shift the blame and deflect to someone else rather than admitting that we made a mistake. Maybe it's the temptation to look at something or watch something that's inappropriate or to talk bad about someone and gossip. These temptations are things that often arise when we least expect them. And as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that these things happen. These temptations are going to come. We don't give our lives to Jesus and then have every obstacle in our life eliminated for the rest of our lives. In fact, following Jesus becomes something that can cause even greater temptation to come because we begin to see that kingdom culture is in direct contrast with the culture of the world. That the decisions to uh, do things God's way are very difficult compared to the decisions to do things the way of the world. When I first started teaching, uh, I used to ask my students the the question about whether or not uh, they would turn in a briefcase with $100,000 in it if they found it. And in the beginning of my teaching career, it was about 50-50. About half of the class would say, yes, if I found a briefcase with $100,000 in it, I would turn it into the police because it's not my money, it's somebody else's. And the other half would say, nope, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? They lost it, I found it, it's mine. The last year I was teaching in the classroom, I asked all of my classes that same question. Every single student said they would keep it. Why? Because the culture of the world is pervading our thoughts and the culture of God's kingdom is slowly fading away as more and more people are turning away from the Christian life to follow after the things of this world. So more than ever, followers of Jesus need to know how to tackle the temptations that come our way in life, the large and the small. And to do that, we have good news that Jesus himself models how you and I can tackle temptation. So if you've got your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, where we're going to read about a very classic and well-known part of the life of Jesus, when after being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, that he goes out into the wilderness where he was tempted. Now, this is a very important 
part of the life of Jesus because it does quite a few things. First, it lets us know that if the Son of God, if Jesus, God in skin, was tempted, then you and I are certainly going to face that temptation. Second of all, it tells us that if Jesus can overcome temptation, then we can follow his model on how to do it. And thirdly, it shows us that we can incorporate things into our daily lives that can help us stand up against these temptations. And so when Jesus experienced this temptation, he gives us this model we're going to look at. And so what we see is that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us right off the bat in verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Now, when we think of wilderness, okay, I'm a, I'm a country kid, right? I, when I think of wilderness, I think of green grassy meadows and tall trees with green leaves and flowers growing everywhere. That's what I think of the wilderness, right? But in the Middle East, the wilderness are these open expanses of flat desert land where the wind never stops blowing and there's very little shelter. This would have been a hot very depressing environment for Jesus to go spend these 40 days. Now, the number 40 days is very important because we see this as a reference back to many other things in the scripture. The two most memorable ones are that it rained for 40 days and nights when the flood covered the earth and killed all of humanity except for Noah and his family. But it also reminds us of when Moses went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights and met with God and received the law of Moses, you know, the law of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. And so Jesus is doing a, a similar thing. He is going out for 40 days and 40 nights to undergo this trial. And it says this in verse 2, For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. Now, it's kind of interesting to me how sometimes the scriptures understate things. That if I did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights, I would be more than just very hungry, okay? I would be starving. I would be famished. You're, you, at this point, you're, you're starving to death. But Jesus is undergoing this trial, and the scriptures show us how he overcame it, and you and I can follow his example. Now, what we need to recognize here in the very beginning is that temptation always comes to us when we're in moments of struggle. Temptation comes when we're in those struggle moments of life. When life is going great, we seldom experience temptation. It's easy to trust God when life is going well, when there's food in the cabinets and clothes on my back and the, the weather is nice and my job is going great and there's money in the bank and we're experiencing these times of prosperity, we don't experience temptation near as often. And when we do, most of the time we don't notice because it's easy to shrug off temptation when life is going well. But when times of struggle come, it causes us to doubt God's goodness when we experience sickness, when we experience financial struggles, when we experience slander and persecution from other people, when life starts falling apart, that's when temptation becomes all the more difficult. This is why 
Jesus went and experienced this desert time for 40 days and 40 nights and became very hungry. Why? Because he needed to be at his weakest state mentally, physically, and spiritually to overcome this temptation. And look at what it says in verse 3. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. So the first thing we see is that Jesus was tempted uh, through provision. This idea of using his own power to fulfill his selfish desires. Now, at first glance, this seems like a very common thing. Like, why in the world would Jesus not turn stones into bread to feed himself? He's human. Now, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And we see this temptation arise to use his power for provision in order to be tempted to say, hey, feed your belly. You know, take care of your body. This is a natural thing. It, it would be something that would seem run of the mill. After all, didn't Jesus multiply the bread and the fish to feed thousands and thousands of hungry people? Why would he not do this for himself? But here's the thing that we need to camp on, is that when we're tempted to cut corners, to create provision in our lives, it, it takes a, the trust away from God and puts it on ourselves. And this is what we see Jesus reply using the scripture in verse 4. It says, but Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Satan was not just tempting him with provision. Satan was tempting him with where that provision came from. The problem wasn't with the miracle. The question was, why should the miracle happen? Every time God shows his power, it is always to bring him glory. Jesus recognized that to do this would be stepping outside of God's will, not because God did not want him to have bread, but because God wanted him to rely on him. And this is what the, the struggle of temptation with provision is that you and I are tempted to accomplish things on our own, to cut corners, to do things the easy way, to say, you know what, nobody will notice if I do this, right? What, what's $20 from the cash register at work? right? What is using the company card to buy my friend's lunch, right? What, what's the problem with driving my, my rental car, you know, that the company provided for me to go visit my family, right? Or the company car to go take a vacation. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't get my provision from my own means. I get my provision from God's word. Because it wasn't just the bread that was the problem. It was the heart of what Jesus was doing. And that is one of the key principles we find all throughout scripture is that what we do is not near as important to God as the reason why we do it. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day did many good things, but they did it from a heart of selfishness. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside he said they were full of dead people's bones. Jesus in another passage said that it's not what goes into a person's body that makes them unclean, but what comes out of the heart. Samuel, when he was looking for the next king of Israel, was looking at David's brothers and saying, surely these are good-looking, strong, charismatic men. And God told Samuel, hey, you're looking on the outside. Man looks on the outside. 
But God told Samuel that he looked at God, looked at the heart. And that's what Jesus is pointing at, that the heart of provision is not the problem. It's the temptation to do it selfishly. And we can learn that when we're tempted to cut corners and do things our own way to accomplish our selfish desires, we can remember that we don't live on bread alone, on earthly things, that we live by heavenly things, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so first, after the devil failed to tempt Jesus with provision, look what happens next in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, now this is another important moment, now the devil is using God's word. Look at what he says. As for the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You see, Satan is using God's word as well. But here is the struggle moment here for this situation is Satan is twisting the scriptures out of context. And I know I probably sound like a broken record, always coming back to context, but context is the key that we use to unlock the truths of the scripture appropriately. Because if we're not careful, we will twist the scripture to fit our beliefs rather than twisting our beliefs to fit the scriptures. And this is what Satan is doing. Satan is twisting the scriptures. He is using them out of context and telling Jesus, hey, look, you need to jump off the temple. Let everyone see you. And when angels miraculously save you, then everyone will recognize that you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And Satan was twisting the scriptures out of context to tempt Jesus to get more prestige, to get more well-known, to get more fame in his life to say look if you do this then nobody will be able to deny that you're the messiah they'll see the miracle but remember miracles are never used to accomplish our selfish desires miracles always are done to give glory to god and look at what jesus says he said jesus responded the scriptures also say now jesus is bringing it back to proper context he says you must not test the lord your god You see, once again, the problem wasn't with the what, it was the why. You see, having prestige is is not problematic in itself. Leaders are able to accomplish a lot of good because they're well-known. This is why celebrities are often used in charity organizations. Why? Because their fame, their prestige, draws people to the cause. This is why when somebody important shows up, like, like we had an event in our town, Uh, a couple of weeks ago where the governor of our state showed up. He has a lot of prestige. He's the governor of our state. He's the highest ranking government official in our entire state. And he showed up at an event in our small town. And sure enough, people took off work. People showed up to see him and hear what he had to say. Why? Because he had prestige. Prestige can be used for very good things. But Jesus wanted the devil to understand, and we can learn from this thousands of years later, that the problem was not the what, it was the why. That Jesus was saying, no, we don't test God. My heartbeat to get my prestige is not to test God and make him give me something. This is why when we read scripture in context, that 
we're taught by Jesus to, to pray for anything in his name. Why? Because when we pray in God's name, it, it, it submits us to God's authority. That we say, God, it's not about my will, it's about your will. And Lord, we want these things. We want miracles to happen. We want to see, you know, healings and we want to see provision and we want to see the unthinkable happen so that it will bring glory to you, to God. And that's the heartbeat. This is why when we're tempted by prestige, the problem is not with the fame. The question is, what's the reason behind it? Do I want to be well-known so I can draw people to God? Do I want to have resources and wealth and provision in my life so I can minister to other people? Or do I want these things to build my kingdom, to make myself look good, to get people to adore me? And that's the struggle with prestige. And Jesus reminded him, no, we don't test God, right? We worship God. That's my paraphrase. Look at what happens next in verse 8. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give them all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. So first, the devil tried tempting Jesus with provision. Secondly, he tried to tempt Jesus with prestige. Now he's tempting Jesus with power. You see, humanly speaking, Jesus didn't have a lot of pedigrees. He didn't have a lot of earthly power in the eyes of people and society, right? He was the son of a carpenter from a no-name family in a no-name town, in a no-name region of ultimately a pretty no-name country on the grand scheme of things. In the entirety of the Roman Empire, which was the world they knew, Israel was a very, or the region of Judea, as it was called then, was pretty unknown. But Satan tells Jesus that he will give him all of the kingdoms of the world. Tell him, look, right now, the Roman Empire is in control of everything. You could be in control of everything. And he offers him that if only Jesus would worship Satan. And he was tempted by power, with authority, with the ability to say something and have it happen. Now, here's the problem. Jesus had the authority already. It just had not been given to him yet. It was a work in progress. And we are still seeing this today. The scriptures say that everything is still being subjugated to the authority of Jesus. Jesus compared this to parables of, of a king that went to go and take ownership of a new territory. The, the king already had the territory. Jesus is God over all of creation. He's the author and finisher of everything we see and everything we don't see. But there's a, a sanctification process where everything in the world is slowly being put under his feet. And that phrase means under his control. You see, Jesus is working out a, a larger plan that we don't always understand or even like. We look at this world and we see the struggles and we think, God, if you're all powerful, why is there evil still in the world? It just takes a few clicks of a television remote to flip through the channels and see the devastation and the pain and the suffering that's going on in the world. And it can cause us to doubt God's power. But here's the thing. We have a microwave desire, but we serve a crock pot God. 
And Satan was giving Jesus the microwave option to have it right now. And Jesus responds by saying, Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus used the scriptures to help remind him of what really mattered. It wasn't that Jesus needed that authority. Jesus had already been given it. But he needed to recognize that he was receiving it in God's time. It says, Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. So what do we do with this? Is this just a nice narrative? Is it just a wonderful story from the life of Jesus to show us how awesome Jesus is? Part of that's true. It does show us how great Jesus is. That Jesus is accomplishing what Adam could not. The scriptures often refer to Jesus as the second Adam. That Adam, when faced with temptation, gave in. Because the lie in the beginning had nothing to do with the fruit that Adam was tempted to eat. It had everything to do with the heart to say, God, do I trust you? In the middle of my circumstance, God, do I trust that you really have my best in mind? And so when we get tempted to selfishly acquire for our own gains provision, prestige, and power, now, there's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. One of the greatest things for the kingdom is when followers of Jesus acquire those things in a healthy way. Because when you have resources, when you have, uh, you have prosperity, when you have provision, you can do things for the kingdom that other people can't. You can use, you know, there, there's a family, a, a church community we used to be part of for many years. There's a family that has a very large home. And it's a beautiful home on a beautiful piece of property. And they are always, even to this day, the ones that have pow- have, have uh, parties and have wedding showers and have get-togethers for the church at their house. They say, look, God, you've blessed us with this house, so we want to use it for your glory. I, I can't tell you how many times missionaries and speakers have come through our church community, and the people with the prosperity and the provision are the ones that can write a check to get them out there to say, hey, we want to pour into your ministry. And when a person doesn't have that, they're saying, I've, I've got to pay my own bills. I've got to take care of my family. They don't have that extra provision and overabundance. And so they can't, they can't pour into these ministries. There's nothing wrong with having provision. My, my mentor uh, used to always say that, that one of the most dangerous things to help the kingdom against the enemy is a wealthy Christian. Same thing's true with our prestige. There are many celebrities that are followers of Jesus that use their prestige to accomplish things. You know, whether they're famous athletes or famous musicians or famous movie stars, they use their prestige to bring the kingdom and to and to draw attention to God's goodness. And the same thing's true with power. Man, when you see what wealthy and prestigious and powerful people can do for the kingdom, it's amazing. But when our heart is in the wrong place, that's when we can fall into temptation. How did Jesus keep his heart in the right place? He remembered God's word. And this is our big truth for today, that God's word used God's way accomplishes God's will. You see, when you and I don't know God's word, when we don't use it God's way, then it allows us to fall into temptation. Satan used God's word to tempt Jesus. 
He used the scriptures, but he twisted them out of context. And many famous teachers, preachers, and ministers have, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, twisted the Word of God to make it say what it was never meant to say in order to tempt people to come to a wrong theology and a wrong view of God. And what ends up happening when we do this is we make God a liar, and when things don't happen the way that person promised, then all of a sudden we don't get what we were promised and we doubt God. I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It reminds us, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, in the context that the book of Hebrews and the New Testament was written in, a double-edged sword was called a gladius. And rulers and people in authority under the Roman Empire would be given a gladius. Now, now soldiers carried them for warfare and combat, but rulers and governors would be given ceremonial gladius or gladii to, to represent the authority they had because this was the sword that was used for executions. This is what was used to bring, bring death. And it showed the people that, hey, this ruler has the authority to have me killed. They have power. And what Paul, most people agree that the writer of Hebrews is the Apostle Paul, is writing here, is explaining to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God's Word has the authority. It has the power. It can separate soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And that's what Jesus was showing, that it wasn't the what that the devil was tempting him with. It was the why. And Jesus' heart remained in the right place. Why? Because Jesus used God's word, God's way, and it accomplished God's will. So I don't know what is happening in your life today. I don't know if you're struggling with temptation, but if you're not struggling with temptation now, I can promise you, it will come. If Jesus was tempted, you and I can be assured we will be tempted. In the Gospel of Luke, it adds to this event in Jesus' life and says that, uh, that it says, then the devil went away until a more opportune time. Even Jesus was not just tempted one time. Jesus was tempted multiple times at different points in his life. But we can look at this example to see that when we use God's word, God's way, it accomplishes God's will. As you look at your life today, I want to I want to close by asking you three questions. First, I want to ask you, do you know God's word? Have you done as the as the scriptures say, you know, the 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 Old Testament has the, the famous passage, right, where it says that you got I've hidden your word in my heart so I won't sin against you, right? When we know God's word, man, we we know what God wants us to do when these temptations come. Jesus could face the temptations of the devil because Jesus knew the Word of God and how to use it the right way. And that's the second question. Are you using it God's way? This is why context is so key. And man, I know I say that a lot, but you've got to learn and I've got to learn how to read God's Word in context, to read it the right way. Otherwise, we will twist it to suit our own desires rather than saying, God, let your word convict me. Let your word grow me and draw me to you. 
So not only are, do you know God's Word and are you using it God's way, I want to ask you, are you seeking God's will? You know, Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come. And the King James, it says, you know, thy kingdom come, right? And the little cheesy phrase that, that, I, that I've often asked is, am I seeking my kingdom or thy kingdom? Am I trying to grow my kingdom here on earth? Or am I saying, God, no, everything is for your glory. And I want to ask you that same question today. Is it about your kingdom or God's kingdom? Are you trying to accomplish God's will here on earth as it is in heaven, right? And if you have answered no to any of those questions, you say, no, I don't know God's word, then I, need, I encourage you, start studying it. Are you using it God's way, the right way? Then, hey, if you don't know how to do that, start listening to people and studying under people and learning how to read the Bible in context. But if you haven't done that, man, you're going to fall prey to any teacher that can speak very well. There's a lot of eloquent speakers out there. When we know God's word and we know how to use it God's way, man, it keeps us from falling into these traps of these false teachers. But lastly, man, are we seeking God's will? Are we saying, God, it's not about my kingdom, it's about your kingdom? So I want to encourage you this week to be reminded that we tackle temptation by using God's word, God's way to accomplish God's will. Let's pray together. King Jesus, thank you so much for the men and women in the sound of my voice. And I pray that as we go through seasons and periods of temptation, when we are in the struggle moments of life and we're tempted to cut corners, to be selfish and to grow our own kingdom, that we would step back and say, no, God, your word says that we don't live by bread alone, but we live by your word, that we don't test you and that we worship you alone. God, help us to use your word, your way to accomplish your will. And if we're deficient in any of these areas, Lord, help us to shore up our lives and to find those missing pieces so that we can be powerful and mighty and effective for your kingdom. And we ask all of this in your most holy name. Amen.